so there's a number of these, these factors. There's regulatory risks, there's clinical risks, there's IP risk. Uh, is there other technology that's going to block this from ever, uh, from ever coming out? There's the payer risk that we talked about. There's user compliance or adherence risk. There's market risk. You know, is the market going to big enough, be big enough to drive the investment that's needed to move this technology along? So there's all of these different risk factors. So it starts with optimism, and you need to have that optimism and opportunism to get to that, to that point where you have something on the table that you can evaluate. But now when you're looking at what's the next step in product development, you need to kind of flip a switch, and you need to go from being an, an optimist and an opportunist to being a skeptic. And they need to think about why might this product fail. Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of MedTech Mindset. I'm Dan Henrich, your host, and I'm director of marketing at SmithWise, a medical device product development firm. I'm going to use this first session to kick things off and let you know what to expect from this show. We're going to be talking with guests who are experts in different areas of MedTech, including product design, clinical trials, regulatory, market strategy, funding, things like that. We'll also bring guests onto the show who have had recent experiences commercializing new medical technologies. Some of these might be SmithWise clients, and others are just going to be friends and colleagues we've met working in the industry. We want to hear about their ups and downs and try to draw out some lessons from their practical experiences for you, our listeners. For this first installment, I sat down with the president of SmithWise, Eric Sigalski, and we talked about the big picture of bringing a new piece of medical technology to market. Our conversation touched on a lot of themes that we're going to develop more fully throughout the show, so I think it's a great introduction to help you decide whether or not this podcast is for you. Now, just so you know a little bit more about him and why I think he's worth listening to, Eric is an entrepreneur and a mechanical engineer by training. He's got extensive experience working in the medtech arena. He's held engineering and leadership roles with IDEO and Insight Product Development, and he's even lectured in the Mechanical Engineering Program at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He holds a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from University of Colorado Boulder and an MBA from MIT. Eric founded SmithWise in 2009, and he continues to lead our Boston and Philly teams. So let's get started on MedTech Mindset by jumping into my conversation with Eric. Hey, what's up, Dan? <laughs> hey, Eric. How are you today? Good, good. Good. So what are we doing here? This is our very first episode of MedTech Mindset. So this is our, our chance to kick off and grab everybody's attention, explain to them why we're launching this podcast. Okay, okay. Sounds interesting. So I thought you'd be a good first guest because, you know, we, uh, we are often... Uh, approached by by you know a prospective client or a new project, and the first words out of their mouth are usually, "I have this idea, but I need a prototype." Yep, all the time. And uh, so I thought it'd be good to begin with that uh, with that idea because it's probably the idea in the mind of some of our listeners, and um, and we wanted to talk about sort of the the uh, different phases of things that they need to think through uh, before they get to the point where they need to build a prototype. Got it, got it. Yeah, so you're right. We hear, you know, 95% of the time when, when companies come to us, usually at the early stage, uh, they have an idea, they see an opportunity to make a difference with a new medical technology, and right off the bat, they jump towards, you know, how do we build this prototype to really demonstrate the idea? Right, so I thought it'd be good to, um, to use this, this first chat as a, as a chance to take a step back 
and talk about the things, where do prototypes come into play, but more importantly, the whole process of bringing a new piece of MedTech to market. Um, what are the steps that you really go through? And I think um, it'd be good to take a step back and talk about defining the bigger picture of the need. You know, where does your idea fit in and what's mm-hmm. the real value that you see if everything goes right throughout the development process? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that that's, that's a, a part that, you know, a lot of times gets glossed over. It gets, you know, there's, there's a, a, an awareness to a particular medical need initially, uh, and that leads to a quick idea session. And, and then, you know, people become fairly focused on, on that idea. And that makes sense because, you know, that's where the commercial opportunity is. That's where sort of the creative process starts to kick in. But, you know, in, in our point of view, we think that there's a lot of benefit in going back to the need to really make sure that the solutions that, you know, that we're building off of are, are really founded in, they're, they're grounded in a very strong, uh, strong need. And, you know, we, we follow a process that is advocated and, and spelled out pretty well in the biodesign uh, book that uh, is, is coursework at Stanford. And, you know, really coming, uh, coming up with the need, it, it, it comes down to three components. There's three parts to it. The first is, is really looking at who specifically is the patient population that you are targeting, right? So in, in many cases, a common mistake for startup companies is that they try to address too large of a patient population. They try to say, this product is going to be for everyone. But realistically, in, in medical device uh, development, it is, it is much more effective to be laser-focused on a very specific patient population first. And then if you're successful there, then you can expand into other markets. So we, we think that, you know, that, that is the first part. Who exactly is your user? Who is, the, who is the, um, the patient? From there, it's looking at what is the problem? What's, what is really going on with that, with that patient that deserves an additional solution? And, you know, how is this problem being addressed by other solutions, whether those are, those are products, whether those are services, whether it's, you know, a, a workaround that a, a, a patient is, is implementing themselves? There are often a variety of ways of solving a problem. And so developing a landscape or understanding what all of those problems are is, is uh, or what are the, those, those, you know, ways of addressing a problem, that's, that's an important part of the process. Yeah, so it's not really just, has this technology been... Um, commercialized before, right? It's how is this problem currently being solved and is it a problem that's appreciated by the market already? Right, yeah. right. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then, and then the third piece is, is you know, what is the, what's happening right now? What is the outcome of this problem, right? So how are you going to quantify this outcome in such a way that, you know, allows you to determine if your solution is really addressing that, that problem that you spelled out? with the specific patient population. So it's those three components. It's the, the patient population, the problem that's facing the patient, and then the outcome that is, is really worthy of, of, of solving, you know, yeah. solving that problem. And ideally, really, you should be able to tie all of those things into a very succinct need statement, right, about that contains each of those three elements. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And if you can't do that, then it's probably a sign that you haven't really dialed into the problem that you're solving well right enough. Yeah, right. right yeah yeah and it's it's very very common you know all too often we see pitch decks from startup companies that spend you know a ton of time talking about their technology or their solution and they have not even clearly spelled out the need statement so it's a really foundational part of the process and 
And you know, in many cases, companies should really be spending more time uh, refining and, and spelling out that need to make sure that uh, that you know they're they're solving solving a real a real problem that needs to be solved. Yeah, I think that's something that that struck me. You know, a couple of weeks ago, you and I were down at UPenn for that biomedical uh, engineering uh, kind of student pitch meeting, and and uh, there were groups of some really talented and bright engineering students who were pitching. Uh, you know, health-related technologies for their project that they're working on. And in many of the cases, it kind of seemed like there was, it was a technology in search of a, of a problem mm-hmm. uh, rather than the other way around. It, that's sort of the, what you might expect to see from, a, from an undergraduate student, but it doesn't end with graduation. That's something that people are not necessarily um, appreciating throughout the normal course of study to become an engineer or a business person or whatever we still often see, you know, even funded, uh, you know, med tech companies who haven't really dialed into their proper need statement and the problem that they're solving. It. Yeah, I, I think that you know what you mentioned about the engineering students that that is that that happens everywhere at all at all universities. You know, the the schooling of engineers is very solution oriented, right? You get you get your problem sets; those are given to you. And the job or the responsibility of the engineers is to really create the, the solutions that satisfy those problems, right? So there's very, very few parts of an engineering, of the engineer's curriculum that's focused on identification of the problem, right? And so this is, this is something that is very, very common. It's not intuitive uh, to engineers or people that have a technical focus to really be thinking more about that, that need and the problem and the patients. Uh, but it's a super important part of this process. So I guess then it becomes really important for, um, you know, particularly if somebody with an engineering background has an idea that they think might have a great application in healthcare, it's really important to get clinical input early in the process, right? And understand how things are done now and, and get some, some honest reactions to, uh, to your potential new way of solving this problem. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of, you know one of the challenging things about uh, med med tech is that the people that are buying the product are not the people that are are using the product. So the clinicians that are going to be you know using a product, say a surgical device or a diagnostic system, they're they're certainly going to have influence into the utility of the product and how it's going to compare with the other products or services that are currently being used. Uh, but they're one one of many many stakeholders in this medical you know uh, device procurement uh, pr- procurement system. There are hospital administrators that need to really crunch the numbers to understand does this make financial sense. Um, you know there are regulatory bodies that might get in the way of this product from ever seeing the light of day. Um, you know there's the end patients that need to be adherent with certain technologies in order for them to be uh, to be utilized. So and there's the payers right the, that are. The, either the, the public or private payers, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, or a private insurer, and they need to, you need to prove to them that uh, the, the overall cost using your solution is going to be less in the big picture yeah. than whatever the standard of care is. Absolutely. And, yeah. and that could be possibly the most critical uh, aspect to, to really understand what is going to drive change from a payer's perspective whether that's CMS or whether that's private insurance. Right. Um, so yeah, these are all key things. But you know, to your earlier point, 
it is definitely important as, as engineers are coming up with these ideas to vet those concepts with clinicians, but they're not the only stakeholders that matter in this really uh, you know, complex um, industry that we're in. Right, right. So let's talk about once you've, you know, say you have, you have an idea, you have a technology, you think you have an application for it in the healthcare space, and you've done all that, that legwork, you've got your needs statement, you've got some at least preliminary feedback, you know, neutral feedback from clinicians or from people who are going to be, uh, you know, working with the, the product itself to say, yeah, this is a real potential solution to, to an existing problem. Hey listeners, just a quick break to remind you that MedTech Mindset is a production of SmithWise, a medical device development firm with offices in Boston and Philadelphia. We help innovators accelerate new medical technologies along their path to market from concept all the way to commercialization. Visit us at smithwise.com to learn more. You have your idea and you want to start developing that. Um, Let's move into this kind of talk about now am I ready for a prototype? Is that when I start building my first, you know, ordering parts and, and soldering things together? Or, or are, there, are there more things that need to come into it prior to jumping into that process? In, yeah, in sure. Product development? Yeah, great question. And, and you know, a common, uh, a common uh, question that a lot, of, a lot of early stage companies have is what, what should be my next most logical step that's going to help me build value in the company? And the, the way that I think about this is, is that when, when a company or, or new idea is just getting off the ground, you know, the inventors um, of this new technology, they have this very optimistic mindset. They are, they are imagining what the world could be with this new solution that, uh, that they, are, they are creating. And that, you know, leads into new concepts uh, and eventually this, 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 you know, concept for a product that, uh, that you know, could result in a medical, medical technology or medical device. So it starts with optimism, and you need to have that optimism and opportunism to get to that, to that point where you have something on the table that you can evaluate. But now when you're looking at what's the next step in product development, you need to kind of flip a switch, and you need to go from being an, an optimist and an opportunist to being a skeptic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being a skeptic sort of changes your thinking a lot. It, it makes, makes, a, makes an individual think not about why the product will work, but moreover, why the product is not going to work. What are the reasons why this product could fail? You know, pre-market, post-market, whatever may happen, you know, so whatever the case may be. So what are all of those factors? Uh, and, you know, th- then, there, so there's a number of these, these factors. There's regulatory risks, there's clinical risks, uh, does the product work, you know, in humans or with humans? There's IP risk. Uh, is there other technology that's going to block this from ever, uh, from ever coming out? There's the payer risk that we talked about. There's user compliance or adherence risk. There's market risk. You know, is the market going to big enough, be big enough to drive the investment that's needed to move this technology along? So there's all of these different risk factors. And so, you know, Founders of new companies, inventors of new technologies, they need to get into this skeptic's mindset. Mm-hmm. And they need to think about why might this product fail. Right. Um, right. So is that maybe uh, something that is occurring to me as you're, as you're talking about this? Is, is that maybe why we see so many kind of new startups that are, you know, two-person operation, right? And there's, there's very different personalities sometimes when you meet with a, 
with a team. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a two-person team, and one of them really seems to be just boundless energy mm-hmm. and ideas, and everything is kind of like roses and sunshine. And the other person is very, you know, kind of like kind of a Debbie Downer. And so, yeah. You know, is one way you can interpret it. Um, you kind of need both both sides of that, that those ways of thinking, and it can be difficult to combine that into one personality. Yeah, right? absolutely. It's it's a it's a um, I think the way that you, you you put it is 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 right. You know, you need to have that optimism, the energy to move things over, but then you also need to have the critical eye that's questioning things. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, my dad's a mechanical engineer and it always seemed to me when I was a kid like he was just such, you know, such a downer on things, you know. <laughs> and one day he turned to me and he said, "You know, it's my job to think of everything that could possibly go wrong, right?" Yeah. And then when he explained it to me like that, it really kind of put things in perspective, you know. He's he's de-risking, uh, you know, all day every day. Yeah. Basically yeah. is, is yeah. how he how he has to think. Yeah, yeah. very true. Yeah. Cool. So I think that that concept of, of risk is is interesting, particularly in the medical device medtech arena. Um, I guess because people often talk about risk uh, related to medical devices, but they mean it very in a very particular area of risk, which is basically what's the risk to the patient if this device fails, right? So then, you know, you were talking about other areas of risk, you know, regulatory risk, market risk, right? So Talk to me about how you move through each of those areas and and go about trying to reduce your risk uh, in each of those different sectors. Yeah, yeah, sure. So you know, as as we started out, there's there's also technical risk, and that's probably the easiest one to tackle first. Uh, you know, there's a question about viability. Is this idea going to really uh, going to really work? And so the, the the natural way to approach that is is to you know come up with uh, breadboards or test beds that allow uh, allow a team to understand what the technical limits are of of an idea, and so you know one of the ways that that as an engineering firm here at Smithwise, one of the ways that we tackle that is is we try to uh, to sort of simplify and isolate the key technical risk areas. So if there's a you know if they if there's a core mechanism that really needs to fit within a certain size in order for a product to to be viable, then we will just isolate that one mechanism and we will focus on iterating that in a very, very rapid way. Um, you know, if it's an electrical subsystem that needs to be uh, needs to be developed so that it can, you know, be managed, it can provide all of the functionality in a very low power uh, environment, then we might isolate that elect- electrical subsystem uh, so that we can iterate that technology. I think one of the one of the uh, one of the approaches that does not work uh, when you're at the at the very early stages of looking at, at technical risk is to try to merge all of these different things together and create a single cohesive prototype. The reason being is that when you put all of these things together into you know a holistic prototype, um, the, the 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 challenge is that number one, it's going to take you a really long time to get there, and then number two is. Uh, when something goes wrong, you're not going to exactly know why or where it went wrong. It's right. going to be a little bit nebulous, right? Um, and then I guess the, the the last reason is that development of of technology, product development is a, is a lot about iterations, and you want to be able to reduce the size, the, the the length of an iteration cycle as much as you can. And the expense, right? And the expense, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, money is is short for a lot of companies that are developing new medical technologies. So if you isolate that technology into a core area, 
it allows you to iterate that, that one specific subsystem much more quickly. And then once you get all of the performance of those subsystems the way that you want them to be, then you pull them together into that cohesive working model uh, that demonstrates the overall system level functionality you're looking to achieve. Right, so you can have, you can have a, a prototype that maybe is your, you know, your electrical components prototype, your mechanical components prototype, your human factors prototype, right? That is, does this, does this feel natural for, for the user? But you might never tie those things together during the first prototyping phases, right? That might be the next thing down the line after you've isolated each of those Yeah, systems. absolutely. And so I'm glad you brought, in, brought up the, the human factors and, and usability type of prototyping. If, if I have a new medical technology, let's say it's a wearable, and it needs to be um, used by a person at home, and they need to be wearing this product for you know, 10 hours a day, hypothetically. Um, you know, if I'm testing out an idea, do I really need to have that, that mock-up or that prototype fully functional in order for a user to give me feedback on it? You know, probably not. I can come up with a mock-up that is very simplistic that just focuses on the key usability attributes that are going to matter to that individual. Right. So this can be a non-functional mock-up that you take out to users, get their feedback on, and, and better yet, it's, it's multiple mock-ups because you're simplifying things. It's really just a, a sort of dummy shell of a product. You can come up with six or eight different versions mm -hmm. of this and test all of those versions with potential users. It's a great way to get a lot of that that you know, longer-term user usability and uh, sort of concept preference feedback to help you steer that direction. And that might really impact your, your design process very significantly, right? And if you're deciding where to place a sensor and, it, and it's going, you think it's going to be going on someone's wrist, but it ends up, you know, whatever, going you know, around, around them in some way or hanging from their neck or whatever the case may be, that will very much impact the rest of your design process, which for all, how all those components Absolutely. function. Right? It's going to drive all kinds of requirements. You know, it's going to it's going to drive the size and the shape of the of the housing or the package that all of the electronics are going to be contained uh, within. You know, it's going to uh, define uh, you know whether it's going over garments or under garments, directly on the skin or hanging off of a, a pocket or a bra strap. You know, it's all of these sort of architectural requirements from a usability standpoint are going to drive the design. So it's really important to be thinking about that stuff up front. You know, if you focus on technology, uh, you know, too much at the front end and you ignore a lot of the human factors, it could be a rude awakening when you go out and get feedback from customers and you realize that you've developed the wrong product. And now you have to go all the way back to the drawing board and, you know, start exploring these new configurations from scratch. Yeah. I think that maybe some... Uh, or a, a lot of people have in their minds when they say, you know, I need a prototype, what they really have in their minds is, I want to be able to hold something in my hands when I make that, you know, Shark Tank-like investor pitch, right, that is, that is going to look really slick mm -hmm. and impress somebody right up front. Mm -hmm. But really, most of, most of the prototyping process is really about learning what isn't right about your current design. Right? And yeah. So that you can change it the next time around. Right, right. Pro prototyping is really, you know, in, in, in my perspective, it's a, it's a learning methodology. It's a way of thinking to test out your ideas in a very rapid way. Right? And so, you know, yes, everyone's goal is to have that cohesive uh, prototype that demonstrates the full functionality and it's the right form factor and it's the right, you know, cost structure and it has all of the embedded functionality. That's where everyone wants to go. 
But the way to get there is by taking this isolated approach, by isolating your risk factors, iterating each of those risk factors individually, and then merging them afterward. So it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a different approach than most, than most startup companies take, but we believe it's the one that results in the most efficient process. Hey listeners, if you have a great MedTech story to tell, or maybe a suggested guest we should have on the show, or a topic in MedTech you think we should cover, send me an email at marketing at smithwise.com, or use the contact us form on our website. So one other area that I, I want to make sure we, we touch on is sort of the regulatory uh, approach. I think often people think of regulatory approval as kind of like once they get that stamp of approval from FDA, they're kind of like home, you know, they're free and clear and mm-hmm. now they can bring the product to market. But all that means, right, is that the FDA is not going to stop you from marketing your product. Right. right? So let, let's talk about kind of like the different approaches to overcoming, you know, that regulatory hurdle. And then what comes after it? Yeah, yeah, sure. It's, it's a, another, another factor that needs to be considered very early on in the process. And for, for some products, like you mentioned, if it's a you know, consumer wellness device, a wearable device, uh, you know, maybe you do have the option of it, it could be marketed as an unregulated consumer product, uh, or it could also be marketed as a regulated medical device. And it's a really important uh, topic for companies to consider at the very early stage. There's implications to either one of those. Sure, and those, those, that decision will really totally determine your, your whole go-to-market strategy, right? Exactly. Are you marketing it to consumers or are you marketing it to payers? Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, and, it, and it will also drive certain design elements. So, you know, the design of the product, it may be of, of a different cost structure if you're marketing it to consumers rather than trying to, you know, get a product to be purchased by hospitals, right? So it right. will, uh, these decisions that companies make at the very early stage, uh, they, they have longer term consequences that people need to be aware of. Um, you know, but, but back to, you know, there's, there's another, a, a number of other ways that you can get regulatory insights. Uh, for the longest time, you know, people were fearful of, of getting, you know, getting together with FDA. They were fearful you that FDA, be on the radar. Yeah, yeah, they were going to give you the, <laughs> the black mark and you were never going to be approved once you got that black mark. So FDA has evolved immensely in the last, uh, in the last decade. They have programs now for doing informational sessions where you can collect feedback in an informal manner with FDA officials. There's pre-submission meetings where you can present the endpoints that you're looking to achieve, an animal model that you're looking to support uh, an IDE application, and, and collect formal feedback from FDA. So there are some really great ways to collect feedback uh, from FDA, and you know it, it's an important part of the process. Companies should not be avoiding FDA now until it's too late. Because again, you know, if you wait too long and you get a response that after you've invested, you know, an enormous amount in product development and clinical affairs, uh, you know, then you're going to have to have to spend a lot of time and a lot of money redoing uh, all of that all of that front end effort. So again, it's it's about thinking about those longer term consequences, those longer-term decisions, and trying to figure out how can I get some feedback as early on in the development process as possible. Right. And that kind of ties maybe into, you know, another sort of pre-market thing you need to worry about, which is intellectual property and patents, right? Mm. So um, we talked about what are the other solutions to this problem, the fact they might not be just 
a similar piece of technology, right? Right. But when it comes to um, exploring, uh, you know, existing or prior art, right? What? How do you go about that that process? Yeah. So there's there's a, a, a you know a, a few few key pieces there. There's first looking at you know what what is out there. What does the current patent landscape look like? And you know, oftentimes, what the the way that this has started is, you know, individuals, engineers, or people that are founders of the companies will hop on Google Patents or the USPTO uh, website and start to do Boolean style searches, looking at you know, typing in keywords and finding the patents that are most relevant. Once they find those initial patents, then following the references and citations. Uh, to you know that that link to the most uh, relevant patents. That's a great way to get an initial pass of, of the the overall patent landscape. So you know, kind of understanding the the patent that patent landscape at the front end is pretty critical. A lot of times, investors want to know you know have you gotten a, a formal legal opinion of freedom to operate. That's a different level of of patent right. scrutiny, and it's usually a pretty costly undertaking. So in most cases, startup companies that are, are resource constrained do not invest in that in, until a little bit further along in the process, right. unless their investors are insisting on it. Um, but you at least need to do preliminary due diligence to understand what IP is out there, right, and and what IP is protected, because just because there's there's no product on the market that utilizes this technology doesn't mean that someone doesn't hold a patent to it, right? Uh, right, right. I mean, there, there could be, that's a, that's a great point. There's a lot of patents for, you know, technologies that, that are, 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 not on the, are not, not on the market. And so you do have to be um, looking at the patent database to, you know, see if you're stepping on, you know, another, another company's patent. Yeah. Another good source of looking at products or, or you know, uh, products that have become commercial or were commercial at one, at one time uh, is in looking at FDA's 510K database. So this is, of course, limited to you know, products that are, that are 510Ks, but um, you know, this allows you to type in a certain classification code and identify all of the products that have been cleared for 510K. So that's another, another good way to get a basic understanding of what products have historically received FDA clearance and, and maybe what products are, are already you know, still on the market in a particular category. Great. So all of these things that we're talking about are, are strategies that you need to begin defining very early on in the process. Mm. What about, you know, what about your go-to-market? How do all of those kind of tie into your go-to-market strategy mm-hmm. and, and making that ultimate, you know, go-no-go decision that your investor is going to have to make of does this market opportunity in justify the amount of investment that you think is needed up front? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, one thing that we didn't talk much about yet, but it's it's a really key aspect of go-to-market strategy for medical devices is the clinical risk. You know, so how do you how does a, a new company prove that their technology is superior from a clinical perspective than the standard of care? And this is, this is interwoven with the market strategy, right? There might be some clinical work that is needed for regulatory clearance, but there's a, another level of, of clinical work that is often needed to prove the value of a product uh, related to the competition, right? So that type of clinical study might be looking at 
um, you know, reduction in, re in readmissions, or uh, it might be looking at, you know, reduction in a, a certain um, cost element or a, uh, you know, hospital stay time. Whatever those endpoints are, you know, you need to identify how am I going to prove to the medical community that this technology is, is superior. Uh, and so whether it's a 510K or whether it's a PMA, you really have to be thinking about that, that clinical strategy. How am I going to prove that this is, this is better? Uh, and so that, that often feeds the, you know, feeds the go-to-market strategy. If you can conduct that clinical study in a really efficient way and present the data such that it is a cost savings to a hospital, then maybe your hospital, the hospital is the, is the payer. If instead uh, you are looking at, you know, uh, providing a product that's falling under an existing reimbursement code, and you know you're you're um, looking to you know do this more cost effectively than a competing technology, uh, then that's another way to get hospitals to consider your new product or technology. Um, in many in certain cases, that there is no code. You know, for a lot of de novo devices that are being developed and new PMAs, there might not be a, a, a new code or a code that's, on, that's available. And so this can be a much more lengthy process, um, but it's, it's one that needs to be considered really early. What does that clinical study need to look like in order to compel uh, CMS to set up a, a new code and to provide the coverage that's going to be needed to you know, justify this, this, this new medical technology down the road? Right. So that's kind of an example, I guess, of how your, your regulatory pathway is going to very much spell out kind of or, or, or define, help define your business plan. Because if you're going to market via a 510K pathway versus a de novo pathway, that makes a huge difference in your, in your time to market, right? Mm -hmm. which, which translates into overall cost of bringing the product to market. Right, yeah. right. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. You know, if you're looking at the de novo 510K pathway, then you may need to uh, run some additional clinicals. And, and, you know, there may be uncertainty about the coverage uh, or the coding that's going to be available to that product longer term. So, you know, again, looking at that, that regulatory pathway very early and using that as a, as, a, as a key point to, you know, make your decision, architectural decisions about the, you know, the product development uh, that's that's re a really important consideration at the front end. One of the things I want to make sure our, our listeners understand in this first episode is that we're trying to set the stage here for what it takes to bring a new medical product to market, whether it's a medical device that's regulated or whether it's a it's a consumer wellness product. You know, there are all of these different areas that that come into play. We're going to be in the in the coming episodes sitting down with both experts in these particular areas because you should always have expert opinions as you get farther down the, the track. And we're also going to be sitting down with uh, folks who have been kind of through this process recently in maybe a new med tech startup, mm. right? So um, I think we're, you and I are both really looking forward to those conversations and we have a great slate of, of folks who are, who are um, you know, signed up to, to come in and have those conversations about clinicals and and you know what do investors look at when they're when they're deciding whether or not to, to fund a new company and what's the you know process for determining what the existing IP is and how do you approach the FDA and your and form your regulatory strategy and all that so um, I think this is going to be a really great uh, series for people who are especially for people who are early on thinking about how to begin that process yeah I, I think that's 
that's uh, dead on. So, you know, we, we are at Smithwise, we're, we're focused on product development, right? We're focused on a lot of the engineering, the design, the manufacturing of new medical products. But, you know, one of the things that I, I realized in, in, throughout my career is that the product development of medical technology is complex. And you really need to be considering all of these different factors that we just discussed. If you try to develop a product in a vacuum, then you're going to have some, you know, some, some big nightmares to address later on. And so you know, bringing in these experts to talk about all of these areas uh, is going to help us you know, better understand how to integrate those, those aspects into product development. And it's hopefully going to allow our listeners to get you know, the insights that are needed to shape their product development strategies as well. Yeah, I think what we're really talking about is, is going into the product development and the design and engineering phases of your project with your eyes open to the different hurdles that you need to get over in, in these various areas. It's a little bit like that Gilligan's Island special where the professor gets back from the island and he's been inventing in a vacuum for the past 10 years, mm-hmm. right? And he's got all these great ideas, but then he, he brings them back to civilization to find that they already exist. Yeah, right. Right. So I think a, a real theme that's going to come out here is the earlier the intervention you can get, the better input you can get from people who have experience in these different areas, whether it's clinical or legal or regulatory, right? The better off you're going to be throughout your product development process. The faster you can iterate and bring your device to market and the, the lower you can keep your costs. So I think that's part of what we're trying to, um, we're hoping that this podcast series really helps people think through. Absolutely. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Well, Eric, thanks for sitting down today. I, uh, I'm very excited about kicking this off. I think, I think you are too. And um, we're very, uh, we've got a very good slate of, of people who are, who are ready to talk about these issues with us. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Should be pretty exciting. Looking right. forward to it. So that's our first show. Next time on MedTech Mindset, we'll have a slightly different type of conversation. We're going to be talking with Wamas Singatat. He's VP of Product Development and CTO of Active Protective, a startup that's very close to commercializing a really cool new piece of MedTech. Wamas will talk to us about the journey of this product to market and how he and his team have thought through various aspects of their go-to-market strategy. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, please take a moment to subscribe and leave us a great review on your podcast platform of choice. And tell your colleagues they should tune in too. MedTech Mindset is produced by Smithwise right here in our Philadelphia office. Our theme music is composed and personally curated by the Polish Ambassador. Thanks for tuning in today. We'll catch you next time on MedTech Mindset.